John chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a good request, isn't it? Sir, to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. When they tell Jesus that there are Greeks that want to see him, Jesus gives a fairly lengthy answer uh, in verse 23 all the way down to verse 32. And perhaps the question is, well, why do they want to see me? Why would the Greeks want to see me? Do they want to see a miracle? I mean, why are they seeking me out? And as Jesus learns about the desire of the Greeks to come and see him, he gives this somewhat cryptic answer. Why does he say this in response? Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The Son of Man has come, or the hour has come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And you might be saying, what on earth has that got to do with somebody who wants to see me? Why is he saying this? If any man serves me, then he starts talking about servanthood. If any man serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Knowing what's about to happen, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it, they said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, uh, including the Greeks that came to ask to see him. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, would you agree with me? That's kind of a roundabout way to respond to people who said, we want to see Jesus. And that's his response. Uh, kind of a roundabout way of saying things. I want you to note that in the response that Jesus gives, that there are four key words or four key thoughts. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to see him, he wants you to be aware of four things. Number one, he says he has to be lifted up. Number two, you read about glory or glorify several times. You heard that. Third, he talks about my hour has come. And then fourthly, he talks about this grain of wheat. 
So if you want to know who Jesus is, he wants you to understand what it means to be lifted up, what glory means, what the hour means, and what a corn of wheat is all about. And if we don't catch those four things, we won't see Jesus. So, what is Jesus on about? John chapter 12 is kind of like the theological center of the Gospel of John, especially those verses that we just read. In the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus gives little partial pictures, little teasers of what glory is. And in the first 12 chapters of John, he's, he's speaking mostly to the world. Starting from chapter 12 on, Jesus no longer speaks to the world, but he only speaks to his disciples. And he's, you're not just going to see little pictures of glory, you're going to get the full revelation of glory as it's about to unfold. In the first 12 chapters, his hour had not come, but starting in chapter 12, he makes the announcement that the hour has arrived. It's now upon me. It's interesting to note, by the time you get to verse 36 of this particular chapter, this is the last appeal that Jesus will give to the world. That's it. He's done talking to the world. He's finished. And he's going to leave the temple, and he will never see the temple again. He's finished. He's out there. Just before we can understand these things about what's called the Passion Week here, uh, to help us to get prepared to understand the story emotionally, John will tell us at the beginning of chapter 12 about a woman that anointed the feet of Jesus and washed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair. Whether she understood what she was doing, we really don't know. But nevertheless, it was very prophetic. And you as a reader get this idea that something is about to happen here and what that woman did was very, very special, even if we don't quite get it, what had happened. And then after that, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in what we call the triumphant entry into there. And we can see that something is definitely expected from Jesus. What the people expect and what they get are two very different things, but... They expect something from Jesus, and they're waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he is he who come in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna, translated in English, means save us. That's what it means, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save us, save us. Except the expectation of the people when they said those words was not what Jesus had in mind at all. Their cry was, save us from the Romans. <laughs> Throw them out and give us our own nationality back again. And um, they're just not quite getting it. And in this midst, the people are crying out, save us, save us, save us. Here come these Greeks, not Jews. Hey, we want to see Jesus. And contrary to the expectation that the people had, he's going to give the real reason why he came. Do you really want to see me? Know who I am about. So let's look at these four terms that I brought your attention to. The first one we'll look at is this phrase, lifted up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men. Then you Greeks can come see me and you know me for who I am. If I be lifted up. Now, what does that term lifted up mean? 
Well, thankfully, it's easy to know because John has already used that phrase about Jesus earlier. In John chapter 3, in verse number 14, as Moses lifted up that serpent on that pole, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And what a picture that is, you know, old Israel. Aren't you glad you weren't a member of old Israel? They were given over to murmuring and complaining and grumbling and just just being mean people. You know, and because of their constant complaining and grumbling, um, God just exactly wasn't pleased with them. Here come the fiery little serpents and uh, they do their not-so-nice business. <laughs> and people are perishing. And But here's a good truth. God doesn't leave us to our own disasters. How many are glad for that? He doesn't leave us to our own disasters, but there's a solution. And, and they make a, a fiery serpent and they lift it up on a pole. And when the people look upon that, they're healed. When the people, wait a second, when they see that serpent, when they look upon the venom that's in their own souls and their own hearts, they have to look upon their own evil hearts when they see that servant. And when they see all that evil has been lifted up, there's redemption for them. And you know that as a picture of Jesus going up, being lifted up on the cross. And, you know, he had to made, be made ugly with the ugliness of our, our sin. And if we see it up there, we know that we're, we're saved and forgiven people. And so Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, uh, lift it up. you got to see me in that way, lift it up. But another one was this interesting word, glory. You know, where he, he says to the Father, glorify your name. And what's about to happen? Glorify your name. And the voice comes from heaven saying, I have both glorified it past tense and will glorify it again in the immediate future. We'll glorify it again. What does that mean, glory? This word glory is an important word in the Gospel of John. John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his, his glory. The glory was something that was manifest, something that you could see. To glorify means to manifest, it means to honor something. Have you ever had that impression where God reveals himself to you and there's kind of an impression being made on your heart, almost like a weight, a nice weight on your soul and, and something of God is being revealed to your, to, your, to your heart and to your soul and there's this impression being made upon you. That's God glorifying himself. That's God revealing himself and speaking to you. And Jesus asked God to glorify your name. In other words, Father, I want you to show who you are. I want you to show the world what your nature is. I want you to show the world what your character is. And the Father said, I've already done that with you, and I will do it again. So let me explore for a little minute where he says, I have already glorified Past tense. Well, John chapter 2, the first miracle. No, I'm sorry, not a miracle, the first sign. And I say that on purpose. 
Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are referred to as miraculous works. But John, even though they are miracles, does not, in the Greek language, call them miracles. Each one of them, there's seven of them, he calls them a sign. And that's very important. That means every miracle, every sign that Jesus performed is actually a revelation of who he is. It's going to teach us something about who he is. And John chapter 2 and verse 11, at the end of the story of turning water into wine, he said this was the beginning of miracles or the beginning of signs which Jesus did. Is the first time that there was the beginning to manifest his glory. And so that first sign of turning water into wine was the beginning of manifesting this thing called glory. Now, I also believe that that first sign is the most powerful sign Jesus ever performed. Now, that might be a matter of opinion. No, I, could, I think raising the dead was a greater sign than that. Or I think casting out devils was a greater sign. Or healing the blind or the deaf or the lepers or whatever. I think those were great. And I would disagree. And here's the reason I would say the water to wine is the greatest one. It's because if you could read this in the Greek language, it says the beginning of signs. The, the Greek word is, is arche, the arche of signs. And what that means is this miracle, or this sign, sets the standard for everything to follow. And you will discover that no miracle that Jesus did after that ever matches the standard. Well, you might say, well, what's the standard? Well, if a blind eye is healed, that is miraculous. That attracts attention. People will crowd by the thousands to see somebody who can open blind eyes. And that's a powerful, powerful miracle. But, can you put but to a miracle? But, all that does is return a bad eye back to normal. If Jesus causes a deaf person to hear, he's just making something broken work right. If he multiplies bread, he's just speeding up the process of multiplication. If he raises the dead, as phenomenal as that is, a dead person coming back to life is simply restored back to what he was before. So all the miracles just return people back to their former state. But water to wine, water never turns into wine. That's not normal. And what you have in that first miracle is a transformation of substance, not putting back something to what it was before, but a complete transformation of substance. And the very first miracle Jesus did was a miracle of transformation from one thing to something totally different. Water will never turn into wine. Sit it on a counter for a thousand years, it's not going to turn into wine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not its nature to turn into wine. It's, it doesn't heal itself to become wine. Never. It's a complete and absolute total transformation. And that sets the standard. And every miracle, every sign that Jesus did after that was awesome, 
inspired thousands of people, but none of them ever repeated this idea of complete transformation. None of them. Until we get on ahead of myself. Father, glorify your name again. When did that happen again? Well, the answer is very simple. It happened again when Jesus rose from the dead. A total transformation. Folks, in the resurrection, your body is going to go... It's not going to be restored back to what it was. It's going to be a total transformation from a natural body to a spiritual body. And then we've hit the measure of that first sign. That first miracle, first sign Jesus did, he began to manifest his glory. And then if you work through the, the seven signs, when you get to the seventh sign, which is chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not going to go yet. Uh, this thing is all meant for the glory of God. And in verse 40 of that same chapter, he says to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'd see the glory of God. So every sign here is meant to show you just a little snippet, a little picture, a little a teaser of what glory is like. And then if you just work through those seven uh, miracles there, like the second one, the healing of the nobleman's son from a distance, remember that? I mean, the sixth son wasn't even there. He was 20 miles away. And Jesus said, your son lives. What does that tell you about Jesus? That tells us this, that he is the healer, and Jesus is unrestricted by space. Unrestricted by distance. Well, that's God, because a man is restricted by distance, but not Jesus. Unrestricted by distance. Folks, that's glorious. Or when Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, he does it on the Sabbath day, which makes the religious authorities quite angry, at him, what do we learn there? We learn that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, but we also learn this: he is unrestricted by the passage of time. Jesus is never late, no matter what you think. <laughs> Thirty-eight years means nothing to Jesus. Time is not an issue with Jesus. He's unrestricted by distance, and he's unrestricted by time. I don't care how long you've been lame. He's unrestricted by time. You know, I once went to an evangelist meeting when I was very young. That was just a long time ago. And he had a banner on the back wall of the building. And it said, Jesus is never late. And then it was signed, Lazarus. He's not restricted by distance. He's not restricted by time. And when he argues with the Pharisees about healing on the Sabbath, he says, well, I'm just working with my father. And there's a revelation of who he is, and the Father works on the Sabbath, so, so Jesus does as well. Or when he feeds the 5,000 with the bread, what do we see here? He's, he's the God of provision under any circumstance. My provision, thank God, is not based upon the economy. It's not. It's not based upon what we hear in the news. It's not based upon what I... On, on the government, is not based on any of that kind of stuff whatsoever. Jesus pays no attention to any of that kind of stuff. He just doesn't. He is the provider under every circumstance. He is the creator God. He can take nothing and multiply it into something. 
that he is a, a miracle provider. Folks, that's a little picture of glory. You know, or when he walks on water. Well, any Old Testament Jewish scholar would know there's only one individual in all of history that walks on water. And the Psalms make it very clear. Only the God of Israel does that. No man does it. No angel does it. If you see somebody walking on water, folks, that's God. That's God. That's plainly the very many Psalms that identify it's only God that walks on water. And um, here comes Jesus walking on water. So who is he? He's God. He's the God of Israel. And um, he has authority over the wind. And he has authority over the waves. Folks, there's only one person who has that authority. You met him in the story of the Exodus. Where he caused the great wind to blow to divide the waters and make a dry path. Folks, this is God. This is God. Or when he heals a blind man in John chapter 9, another picture of glory. Um, do, you, do you know that there's not one single instance of a blind man being healed in the Old Testament? That that miracle does not exist in the Old Testament? Are you aware of that? And here comes Jesus doing something new. Something that was prophesied but never seen. And Jesus does what has never been done before. And what's interesting in that story is the religious people who can't see when Jesus opens the eyes and gives light. They can't see. So there's another revelation of who Jesus is. Or finally, in, in chapter 11, when he raises the dead Lazarus, which was glorious. Did I not say if you would believe you'd see the glory of God and the story of Lazarus? What does that tell us? Well, he has authority over life and he has authority over death. Well, who is he? Who has authority of life and death? There's only one person who has that. So he is God in all the way. As a matter of fact, he is the resurrection and he is the life. And from the first sign to the seventh sign, what you actually have is the first sign sets the standard and then you get an increasing crescendo of the kind of glory that's being revealed from sign to sign to sign. But by the time you get to the raising of Lazarus, it's, you're seeing greater pictures of glory, but you haven't got the full picture of what glory is yet. That is yet to come. So I have both glorified it, the Father says, and I will glorify it again. And so what's about to happen is you're going to see a greater revelation of glory. The one that will finally match the first sign. What is that? Well, a third term that we saw is my hour is now here. The hour has come upon me. That's a phrase that John uses continually through the gospel. He said to his mother, Woman, what have I got to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Turning to water to wine. Or he says to his brothers in chapter 7, he said, Well, if you are who you think you are, why don't you go up to the feast and make yourself known? He says, Well, my time, my hour has not yet come. And yet when he's in the upper room in John 13, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. In John 17, when he goes out to pray in the garden, knowing that the hour has come. What is that hour? It means it's the final moment when the world was going to sink to its lowest. That's going to be the moment when violent men seize Jesus 
and do violence against him. And he knows it. And when he says in John 12, he says, The hour has come. My soul is troubled. That moment has finally come. So what am I going to say? Father, get me out of here? No, it's for this hour that I came into the world. So no, I'm not about to leave. And so instead of as difficult, as hard as it might seem, his prayer is, Father, in this hour, glorify your name. Bring an end, a full revelation of the glory that you've only seen little snippets of. Let us stop seeing the trailer and let us watch the movie. Let us stop seeing little snippets on television and let's go into the full theater building and watch the whole thing. Okay, we're going to see the fullness of glory. Well, what is that glory? Now I have to go to this other one called the grain of wheat. <laughs> the perfect picture of what God is like is seen in the grain of wheat. If you put a seed into the ground, there will be no fruit unless the seed first dies. Without death, there's no release of life. Did we catch that? Without death, there's no release of life. If that seed does not die, it'll never grow beyond the seed. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much, much fruit. And this is how God says, you'll understand who I am and what I am. If you understand my nature, don't look at the kingdoms of this world. Don't look at the king or the queen of a country. Don't look at the president. Don't look at the general of the military. Don't look at any authority, power, figure. I'm a king, but not according to the worldly concepts of what a king is. If you want to know what kind of authority and what kind of a king that I am, look at the grain of mustard seed. Look at the corn of wheat. That's what I'm all about. This is how you're going to get to know who I am, God says to us. Now, flip over to Philippians chapter 2 and you're thinking for a minute where Paul the Apostle is going to say the same thing as John does in Philippians chapter 2. And I believe we need to start at verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him. I like that phrase, he made himself of no reputation. It doesn't say he lost his reputation. It says he made himself of no reputation. Now if I could paraphrase Philippians chapter 2 for a minute. And just use our imagination. I want you to try to imagine something that didn't happen. But just to help us understand, let's excuse ourselves for a little thinking here. It's almost like before creation ever happened, that Jesus, the Son, is looking at his Father, and he starts scratching his head, asking the question, what does it mean to be the Son of my Father? What does it mean to be equal with God? What does that mean as if he didn't know? 
but for our understanding, let's suppose he had this dilemma. What does it mean to be equal with God? And when he studied the nature and the character and the disposition of his father, he came to this conclusion. Being equal with God, equal with my father, there's nothing uh, to be exploited. But to be equal with him means this, that I have to empty myself and give myself away. If I'm going to be like the Father, if I'm going to be equal with Him, I don't grasp onto equality with Him, but instead, I have to empty myself and give my life away and become a servant to others. That's what Jesus discerned it was to be like His Father. Now, what image do you have of what God is like? When you think of God, what do you think of? What picture do you put in your mind? If you could draw me a picture of the heart of God, what would you draw? Would you draw a king sitting on a throne? Well, he is a king, yeah. What, 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 how, draw, give me a picture that describes his nature, his character, and his heart. What picture would you draw? I know people would draw all kinds of things, but Jesus says, I'll tell you, here's the picture, and he does draw it in chapter 13 for us to show you what God is like I'm going to become a servant. There is the nature of God. That's the heart of God. That's the character of God. That's his nature. He is a servant. Didn't Jesus, all the way through the gospel, keep referring to the fact that he only did what he saw his father do, only said what he heard his father say, that he exegeted the father all the time. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I am the perfect reflection and the perfect image of who the Father is. So, this picture of a grain of wheat dying in order to give life for others, that is the heartbeat and the very, very nature of God. Now, when Jesus took on human flesh, when the Son took on human flesh, He did not cease being God. He did not cease being divine. He's the God-man, but he was still, still God. And everything that Jesus does in the flesh, he does according to the very nature and character of God. This is God here. To be equal with God is to embrace self-emptying servanthood. Are we catching? That's the lesson that he's trying to impart. To be equal with God is to embrace self-emptying servanthood. That is God's character and God's nature. Cut open this heart and that's what you're going to find. That is just what it is. So, what picture now are you going to... If I'm going to say draw a picture that shows you what the heart of God is like, what would you draw? Well, Jesus is going to draw it for us in chapter 13. It's a towel. <laughs> there you have the picture of what God is like. A towel. A cradle. A towel. Um, a cross. Does Jesus know what he's doing? There up in the upper room. Is he, is he deluded? If that's what it means to be divine, 
then Jesus is going to tell his disciples, what does it mean to be human? If you're made in God's image, if that's what divinity is like, what does it mean to be his disciple? This is hard lessons for those 12, because they're going to argue about who should be the greatest. And the answer is there in chapter 12, 25, he that loves his life will lose it. He that hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so when the Greeks come and say, sir, we want to see Jesus, it's like Moses crying out, Lord, show us your, your glory. So what does it mean then to be Lord? He's going to give them an object lesson. In chapter 13, you have this picture of what God is like. What does it mean to love Jesus as Lord? Well, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14 will give the answer. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What does it mean to love Jesus as Lord? It means that we wash each other's feet. How do we unpack this? Well, we know that if we lived back in the time of Jesus in Palestine, you wouldn't be wearing shoes and socks or anything else on your feet. You'd be wearing sandals. You know that the roads were always dirty and muddy and dusty, and with only sandals, your feet got hot and tired and dusty and probably smelly. You know, and therefore, whenever you went to a house, there'd be a basin at the door and there would be a towel at the door. But that job of washing feet was the work of only the lowest of your slaves. As a matter of fact, it was so low a job that if you were a Jewish slave, you had the right to say no to it and you could refuse to do it. That's how slow or how low a job it was. And so the 12 disciples and Jesus go in there. There's no one there to wash feet. No one takes it upon themselves to do it. And as they sit around the table, according to Luke's version, they have a discussion. You never guess what the discussion was about. Which of us 12 is going to have the most preeminent positions? Remember James and John at one time went to Jesus, we want the right hand and the left hand, and almost caused a church split before the church was even birthed. Nobody but Jesus is going to tell you what glory looks like. He's going to demonstrate what glory is. And in John 13, Jesus does five things. And I want you to hear the five things carefully. Number one, he rose up from the table. Number two, he laid aside his normal garments. Number three, he took up a towel and wrapped himself in it. Number four, he bent low to wash and to wipe the feet, which is the lowest act of service in human history to do that. And after he did it, number five, he took up his clothes again and returned to his seat. Now, does Jesus delusional? I mean, if he's the Lord, does he know what he's doing? Has he just missed it for a minute? Does he saying, I, I need to give these guys a lesson in humility? Or, or has he just forgot who he was for a minute? The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Master Teacher? Has he forgot? No, he hasn't forgot because at the beginning of chapter 13, it says, and Jesus knowing that his hour had come, 
And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and he was going to God. Jesus, knowing all those things. So he's not delusional and he knows exactly what he's doing. He is going to exegete God. He's going to reveal glory. He's going to show the nature of God. And in those five things, is that's not something he just did in the upper room at the Last Supper. Because I want you to think, what Jesus is doing there is reenacting what he's done from eternity, his birth, to his resurrection and ascension. Because like Jesus rose up from the table, Jesus rose up from heaven. Like he laid aside his normal clothing, Jesus laid aside all the privileges of eternity. And when he took up and wrapped himself in a towel, Jesus wrapped himself in our humanity. And then when he did the lowest job of the slave to wash feet, Jesus, with that towel in which he wrapped himself, lowered himself to the lowest place to wash you and to wash me. If he hadn't lowered himself, it never would have happened. If he didn't have the heart of a servant, it never would have happened. He lowered himself, wrapped himself in it to wash us clean. And when he had finished that, he says he rose up again and took on his normal garments. And at the after his washing us from our sins, he's raised up again back to where he was before. That picture is not a picture of just a lesson in humility. It's a picture of divinity. This is how God acts. This is the character of God. This is the nature of God. This wasn't him being humble. This was him being God. Are we catching that? Not a lesson of humility. It was a lesson in divinity. This is God's character and nature. And in that fush washing, Jesus simply reenacted out what it means to be God because this is what he did as God. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, lowered himself. Amazing. He knows what he is doing. The problem is that the disciples, especially Peter, doesn't know what he's doing. Because Peter, he's the guy that thinks like the world. You know, when he confesses, you are the Christ, and Jesus, oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood didn't reveal that, but my father revealed that to you. Oh, I'm going to give you the keys, and upon this rock I'll build all my church. And maybe Peter's all pumped up about that one. And then he immediately begins, well, now you got the word right, you are the Christ, the Messiah, but you probably don't have the definition correct to go along with the correct word. Now let me tell you what it means to be the Christ. I get to suffer. I get to die. And Peter says, oh no, you don't. Messiahs don't die. Enemies die. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus, oh, Peter, devil, I, Satan, I rebuke you. And Peter's got it wrong. He's got the word right, but the spirit is wrong. The understanding is wrong. The disposition is wrong. And Peter struggles with us all through the Gospels. And when you get to the Last Supper, boy, he's still struggling with this. Hey, you're the master. You're the Lord. You will never wash my feet. 
And listen to what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, and I'm going to paraphrase it, if you don't let me do this, if you don't get this lesson, if you don't know who I am, if you cannot penetrate and see the character of God in this, you're fired. You're out. I'll get someone else to preach on the day of Pentecost. It won't be you. Now that's important because we might get the words right. We might even have our, our theology right and our doctrine right. But if we misrepresent God because we have arrogance instead of servant hearts, God will say, I have no need of you, no matter how good your theology is. Don't complicate the issue by being self-important. If we're going to serve God, it has to be with that character of self-emptying servanthood. Any other disposition of our character will complicate the message of God. Jesus says to Peter, if you don't let me do this, you're fired because you haven't got it. That's very strong language. But it tells me how much of a servant's heart we need to cultivate and forget this pride thing and forget seeking importance by what we do for the Lord. And on your business card, don't call yourself apostle so-and-so or prophet so-and-so or bishop so-and-so. You might be an apostle, you might be a prophet, you might be bishop, but on your business card, why don't you just put a nameless servant down? That more reflects the character of God than all the titles you can have. God is not into titles, he's into towels. So put our, our, our business card as towel bearer. And that reflects the heart and the character and the nature of God. In other words, if you and I want to see Jesus, and don't misunderstand how I'm going to say, but I think we know, we well, we get what I mean. To see God, don't look up. Look down. Because that's where he's active. He's beneath us, below us, lowered himself than us, condescended to serve us. To see God, look down. Jesus, in the form of God, knew to be like God. He had to empty himself, take the lowest form of a servant, and to wash feet. This is the wisdom of God. Now, just to close this off, as Jesus imparts this lesson, uh, of servanthood to his disciples. He says, now I've done that, you ought to wash one another's feet. And here is the fact. You all have a debt of gratitude for washing your feet. But here's your problem. I'm not around, I'm leaving, and I'm not going to be here for you to repay me. So I'll tell you what, I am designating other people. Matter of fact, those ones you just argued with about who should be the greatest. I am designating other people to be the authorized agent to receive payment on my behalf. Then you've got something to tell the world. Because by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When there's that self-sacrificial heart of constant serving one another, the world's going to say, there's reality there. There's something there. And they will know that water has turned into wine when we turn into servants.
because it's not in human nature to be a servant. It's a total transformation of character and nature. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. So the great revelation of glory is not seeing someone raised from the dead. The great revelation of glory is seeing God as a servant. So when Jesus ascended the cross, that is the theater of glory. You have seen the fullness of the nature of God. When you turned water to wine, you saw something of God's nature. When he healed that nobleman's son from a distance, you saw something of God's nature. The pool of Bethesda, the layman, you saw something of God's nature. When he fed the multitudes with a few bread, you saw something of God's nature. When he walked on water, you saw something of God's nature. When he opened the eyes of the blind, you saw some more of God's nature. But you haven't got the full story until you see the cross. And when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, there you see the fullness of what it means to be God. Glory. That is God's nature. And if that's what glory is, and if that's what God's nature is, then Jesus says, go and do likewise, if you're going to be my servants. And we will show the world glory.